Well, please open up your Bible to 1 Peter, chapter 1. In that Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1075. And if you do not have an English Bible at home, we want you to have a Bible so you can take that Bible as a gift. And we'd love it if you would stop by our Connect Corner just let them know you, you grabbed a Bible and they can help you to know how to read it, what to do with it, what, what do you do with what it says, how to know the God who wrote that. They can connect you to the right people there. So please stop by there. Well, I'm very grateful that last week one of our elders, Ian, was able to preach for us. He pointed us to the man who wrote the letter we're going to look at today. And there was so much to take in and to reflect on, especially God's astounding grace and what he would do in a man like Peter and then what he can do through people like us. It's just a really hopeful time to consider that. But today we're going to look at 1 Peter and we have, I thought, two verses to look at today. We're really going to deal with part of verse 1, so we'll be here for a while. <laughs> I wonder if, if a Christian friend came to you and they said that in their, their work or in their school, they were really struggling because people found out they were a Christian and were antagonizing them. And they, that they were saying things about them and ridiculing them because they believe in Jesus Christ. What would you say to that friend? Or if you have endured any sort of ridicule or, or any sort of insults because of Christ, what do you do? With that, where do you go? What's your first instinct in how to handle that? Believe it or not, the Bible deals with that exact situation. But as you probably can imagine, it deals with it in a way that most of us would not think of instinctively. And this is going to bring up the truth of what this whole letter is about in chapter 5, verse 12. It's declaring that this is a true grace of God and that we can stand firm in it. So we can stand firm in what we're going to hear today. It can stand firm even in the worst of times when everything seems to come against you. But what's surprising about the truth we're going to look at today is it is one of the most hated truths in the church. In the last century, uh, British theologian A.W. Pink commented that this is not just hated, it is fiercely opposed by so many people. I think he would agree it's because so many people don't understand why this is such good news for us. And I have to admit that like the people that Pink referred to, I used to be one of the people who hated this doctrine. I thought it was unfair. I thought it was untrue. But like so many, I've come to the conviction after coming under the word of God that not only is it true, but it's good. And it is refreshing and it is helpful. So what is that truth? The truth is that God chooses whom he will save. This is a doctrine that theologians often called election. Now, even Jesus thought about this. You see an interesting story, Luke chapter 4. He's come to his hometown, it's Luke 4, 16, and he's teaching in the synagogue. At first, they are speaking well of him. They are talking about how great he is. But when he gets to the topic of election, they are so filled with wrath that verse 29 says they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's a, a reaction, isn't it? A murderous reaction. Why? Why would they be so upset at what he was teaching? If you look at the passage in 
verses 25 through 28, Jesus talks about that in the days of Elijah the prophet. There were many widows in the land, but God had elected one widow that the prophet went to. The days of Elisha the prophet, there were many lepers in the land, but God elected one leper, a foreigner, that he sent Elisha to to heal. As we come to 1 Peter, this truth we're going to find is meant to help you stand firm in the worst imaginable situations. It's that truth that God chooses his own. Now, I have to admit, the word of God is surprising, but if you welcome it, if you will trust it, build your life on it, you will find a true grace that will hold you fast and help you to stand firm. So I want to read it together with you. So to demonstrate our respect for God's word, would you stand with me? We're going to be reading 1 Peter verses 1 through 2. Again, it's on page 1075 in the Bible. 1 Peter verses, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Friends, the commandment of the Lord is pure and it enlightens our eyes. So welcome it today. You may have a seat. Well, here's the big idea for verse 1. It's that 1 Peter 1, 1, it presents two mindsets that are essential. Two mindsets that are essential for you to stand firm in God's grace. We'll look at the first one this week and the next one next week, Lord willing. But the first mindset is that Christians are elect and secondly, that they are exiles. And if you can grasp these truths and embrace them, you will be put into a place in which you can stand firm in God's true grace. So Christians are elect. They are chosen. And to help us understand this, we're going to ask five questions of this truth. And so we're going to start by asking, what does chosen even mean? What does he mean by chosen? It's right there, to the chosen. Who, who is he talking about? What does it mean? Well, there's a little bit that comes right before that word chosen. And to understand what he means by chosen, we have to grasp that opening line. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. As you know, Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, Scripture always lists him first when it lists those disciples. After Jesus, Peter is the most mentioned character in the New Testament. In fact, in the scripture record, we have Jesus speaking to Peter more than he speaks to anybody else. Peter gets a lot of space, a lot of mention. But Peter never considered himself to be greater than the other apostles. Well, there was an instant when he tried to find out who was the greatest. But after God put him in his spot, he, he never asserted himself to be better than anyone else. In fact, at the end of this letter, in chapter 5, verse 1, he refers to himself simply as a fellow elder. He's a man who understood the greatness of Christ and his inadequacy and that he was humbled by that. Now, there are many things Peter could have said at this moment, but the one thing that God wanted him to say was, apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle is one who is sent, just a general term. It could be you send a child to run an errand, they're an apostle. 
In a sense, all Christians are apostles that were sent to tell the good news of the Lord. But this particular meaning here is a specific office and a gift given to a select few people. So along with 11 other disciples, Jesus called Peter to be his apostle in a way he did not call anybody else. And so Peter is emphasizing here that he has a specific role given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's extraordinary. It's remarkable and rare. It meant that he was a messenger of God. And so his whole life was devoted to the pronouncing of the message that the Lord Jesus had given him. So as an apostle of Jesus Christ, when he went and spoke that message, he went with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Now, biblically speaking, there are three main responsibilities an apostle has. First, they lay a foundation of doctrine that the church is built on. Ephesians 2.20 says, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Well, secondly, apostles were appointed to receive, to preach, and to write divine revelation. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So they lay a doctrinal foundation, They receive, they preach, and they write divine truth. And thirdly, they are called to confirm the divine word and doctrine through what 2 Corinthians 12.12 calls signs and wonders and mighty works. What they said was validated by God doing miraculous deeds through them. It showed that what they were giving to us was from God himself. It was a remarkable time in the church. You can read about it in the the letter of Acts. But once that divine revelation was written down for us in the New Testament, that office and the gift ceased. It was no longer needed. It was a foundational period in the church, and it, it is unrepeatable. And so since the apostles died, the Bible is now the authority for the Christian church, and it is our sole authority. It contains everything that God authorized the apostles to give to us. There's no church leader in Rome. There's no church anywhere that has authority. This alone is the Christian's authority for life and for godliness. This is confirmed by the generation after the apostles. Those church leaders, they rejected the idea that they had any authority on the same level as the apostles. In letters that we have that they wrote, they were emphatic that they were not apostles and there were no apostles after John died in the late first century. So when the Lord's apostles died, that office ceased. Now I want you to listen carefully. If anyone today claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, walk away. Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13 that there would be false apostles. That is a false teacher and avoid that person. So Peter opens up with a statement and it would be an attention-getting moment. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here's why it mattered to them and here is why it matters to us. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter was signaling that everything he would say in this letter was 
authority over our lives. This is the very word of Jesus Christ for all Christians at all times. And so these Christians that he's writing to, they were being persecuted. They were being pressured. Their situation was urgent. And so there's not a time to exchange niceties about the weather or about local events. The Lord Jesus, through the apostle Peter, knew exactly what these people needed. And it started out with this level of authority to say, what I'm about to tell you is the best possible thing to help you in this moment. So it's not peripheral. It's not incidental to the Christian life. This is essential if you're going to stand firm. And what does he say? To those chosen. That's how he leads the letter. So as we are asking this question, what does chosen mean? We know from the very beginning that it is very important. It means something significant. So now let's unpack that word a little bit so we can understand more of the significance. So the word chosen actually is that next word in the Greek after an apostle of Jesus Christ. It says chosen, exile, dispersed. Three words right in a row, but it leads with chosen. That means it has priority. Now to be chosen means to be elected. It means to be selected, hand-picked. So this is supposed to bring us comfort. It's supposed to bring them in particular courage in this hard time. Now some people will take this word chosen in different ways. There are some who mean, think it means that God chose the conditions necessary for people to be saved. And then anyone who can meet those conditions will be in. They'll be saved. But these people will reject that chosen means individual people. It's just as the conditions are necessary and anyone who can get in can get in. But as we'll see, God chose people and not possibilities. Now, others agree that God chooses individuals, but they say God chooses individuals that he knows will choose him. And so he says, well, if you're going to choose me, then I'm going to choose you. He looks down through history and he says, oh, they, they'll choose me. I'm going to pick them first. The problem with that view is that it fails to deal with the seriousness of sin and how it has affected us. You see, the Bible teaches that sin has so corrupted each human that if we're left in our natural state, no one is able to seek God and no one even desires to seek God. Listen to what Ephesians 2.1 says about how we are before God chooses us. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Now, a dead person is dead. You know, it doesn't matter what you do to that person. They're unresponsive. You cannot entice them. You cannot threaten them. You can't convince or compel them. Dead means dead. And what he's talking about here is being spiritually dead. You are dead in your sins. Christian, do you realize you were completely unresponsive to the ways of the Lord? Listen to how Paul wrote it in Romans chapter 3 and just verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, no one even wanted to seek God. Romans 1.30 says, we we're all born haters of God. We didn't want anything to do with God. John 3.19 explains, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Friend, the fact is, 
We love our sin. We don't love God because he asks us to forsake those things and turn to him. So unless God chooses you, you will never turn to him, let alone love him. Even Jesus talked about this, John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It was Jesus' choice, not theirs. Listen to Ephesians 2.5. It helps us see that even when we were dead in our trespasses, what are we going to do? We can't do anything unless God makes us alive together in Christ. So the evidence that a person is chosen is this. At some point, he is made spiritually alive, where the Bible says he is born again. So scripture is clear. We have no desire or ability to seek God. So God does the choosing. The Bible always presents God's choice as gracious, as sovereign, and as irresistible. We call this grace. You know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It proclaims why God's grace is so amazing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. I love how Romans 9, 16 puts it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is such good news. It does not depend. Your salvation does not depend on anything you do, desire, or decide. Friend, the only thing that you add to your salvation is a sin that needs to be forgiven. And praise God, he forgives all those who come to him. Now, some don't like this truth because it seems unfair. It seems unjust that God chooses some and not others. But look, do you really want God to give you what's fair and what's just? Do you realize what we all deserve in ourselves? We deserve to be judged and to be sent to hell for eternity. The only thing that God owes us is judgment for our sin. Salvation is not a matter of justice. It's a matter of grace, undeserved kindness. You don't want to be treated fairly. What's unfair is that any of us are brought into God's family. So if your salvation depends on you choosing God, do you realize that you're doomed? What's to keep you from unchoosing God at some point in your life? But if your salvation depends on a choice that God has made, you have great assurance that he will bring you all the way home. So you can see the idea of being chosen is, is significant. That is a bedrock to build your life on. And it's the most important truth because it starts this letter. It's a means of great assurance. So Let's look at how the Bible uses this word chosen. And this is going to help us to see who does the choosing. We could go to the Old Testament. Remember Abraham? Out of all the pagans in the land, God chooses one man. And this one man through him, there will be a family and then a nation. And through that nation, the promised Messiah would come. And from Abraham, there came a big nation and they were multiplying in Egypt and then they were enslaved there. God sent Moses to rescue the people and he brought them out of the land. And they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience and they, they grumbled and they were disobedient. But God did not cast them off. Then at the very end of that time, Moses gathers the people together in a sermon in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you 
to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face on the earth. You see, God wasn't sitting in heaven wondering what nation will choose me. Will I be selected by somebody? He took the initiative and he went after a people and he aligned himself to them in such a way that he made promises that it didn't matter what they did. It was God who would keep his word to them. It's not just an Old Testament idea. We see it in the New Testament so clearly. Just as God chose Israel to be his people of his own free will, God elects individuals to form the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a first fruits to be saved. Now notice that God's choosing is connected to his loving. God chose you. Who are you? Those who are beloved by the Lord. Now Jesus wasn't vague about this idea at all. John chapter 6 verse 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So if you're chosen, if you respond to God, it's because he's done a work in you already. He's drawn you to himself. And the promise is, Jesus said, I will raise you up. I chose you and I will raise you up. Jesus himself personally guarantees this. Last meal that the disciples have with Jesus, John 13, 18, Jesus said, I'm not speaking to all of you, but I know whom I have chosen. You see, Jesus had a specific chosen people. Judas was not chosen for eternal life, and he would fall away that night. The other 11, they would falter, but ultimately Jesus would keep them. So when Peter's writing to the chosen people, these who are living as exiles or dispersed, he's not referring to people chosen for a task, but those who are chosen to eternal life. Look down at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. He has given this to us. It's not something we do. As Kate will tell you, her daughter Eden didn't say, I'm going to come into being now. There was something else that happened. That child didn't choose to be born. There was a decision that God made to bring that sweet little girl into existence. What chosen means here that Peter's talking about is being born again into a living hope. So friends, we can see that it's God who does the choosing. Because he chooses, then you will respond at some point to his gracious offer of salvation. Now, if you're like me, as when I first was studying this doctrine in my early days, I, I still didn't like it. And so I want to help you come to delight in this wonderful truth by considering why God chooses anyone. And this will help you stand firm on an unshakable bedrock that will sustain you in any storm. Well, what happened to Israel? They realized they were chosen. They became very proud about that. And one danger for those who say, I'm chosen, is we can come to think, oh, it has to do with me. I'm smarter than somebody else. I'm more loving. I'm more special than other people. In fact, we have songs that churches will sing that communicate things like this. Unbiblical ideas like, God couldn't have heaven without you. Really? <laughs> what did God do for eternity past before you existed? Did he not have heaven? Are you necessary to make heaven heaven for God? Other songs will say things like, God saved you because he saw something in you of great worth. 
we heard about what we are like. There's nothing in us of great worth except for the image of God. But God sets his love upon us the same reason he set it upon the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 again, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. Did you catch that? God wanted to set his love on them. And he swore an oath that he would do so. And God always keeps his promises. Now here's the thing about God's love for us. When he loves us, he's not making us a center of his universe. He's not making much of us. Rather, he is showing us the most loving thing he can do. And do you know what that is, friends? The most loving thing that God can do is to show us how great he is. It is to bring us into the most noble of all callings, and that is to make much of him forever. Paul talked about this, Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and here it is, to the praise of his glorious grace. Why does God set his love on you? To show how great he is, how magnanimous he is, how kind he is. But remember, you were chosen, you were predestined in love. Twice in that opening chapter in Ephesians, Paul celebrates that God's purpose for choosing us is to the praise of his glory. Or Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus desires something for believers, and he prayed about this in John 17, 24. Listen to what he said. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why does he want us to be with him where he is? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him so that we can see his glory. Here's the question. Does that sound like love to you? Does that sound like an amazing kindness of God? Now the question is, are you chosen because God loves you or because God wants glory? The answer is both. God loves you and the most loving thing he can do is reveal his glory to you and to bring us to a place where we can make much of him forever. And you have to rethink about this. If Jesus wanted this for us to see his glory, it means his glory must be majestic. It must be so astounding that it will occupy our heart's desires for all of eternity. But I have to be honest. This is hard for a self-absorbed person like myself to get. The reality is gospel presentations today turn the whole thing on its head. So often it's, it sounds like God wants to put you in a room full of mirrors and stand back and say, look how good you are. Look how wonderful you are. You're great. You're amazing. And people love that. Our pride loves that. But here's the reality. As finite creatures, we will never satisfy our own self for eternity, let alone God's desire for glory. There's something far better that God has for us than to be made much of. And that is to spend eternity marveling at his amazing grace. Now, in my time and travel, I've been to, to some amazing places. I stood atop Mount Whitney, the highest mountain in the 48 connected states. 
I've seen the stunning turquoise lakes in, in Banff, Canada. I've stood and gazed at the night sky filled with stars in the darkest place on earth. I've snorkeled in the Red Sea and seen all the amazing creatures there. And do you know what these all have in common? When I was there, I forgot about myself and I was so satisfied. That was the best thing that could happen for us. If you ever get a chance to go to the United States, you must visit the Grand Canyon. It's 18 miles across, 277 miles long. It's over a mile deep. In fact, it's bigger than the smallest state in the United States. Every year, 6 million people visit the canyon, and you will never find except a lunatic who would stand on the edge and sing, then sings my soul, how great I am, how great I am. Look at me, how great I am. No one does that at the Grand Canyon because you realize how small and insignificant you are and you love it. You love it that there's something bigger and better than yourself. This is just a taste of the joy that will come when you're caught up in the majesty and glory of God, that he came to us when we would never go to him. You see, being chosen isn't just cold theology meant for intellectual debate. When Peter wrote this to the chosen, you could almost understand it as to the choice ones, to those that God set his love upon that are now the apple of his eye, as Deuteronomy 32.10 says. The apple of God's eye. I always wondered, what does that mean? It's an expression that means that God is fond of you. He delights in you. You've heard Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Oh, dear chosen Christian, God does delight in you. And because he does, he will not withhold from you his very best. And that is God himself. Remember, we don't deserve this. God chooses because he is gracious and wonderful. He loves because he wants to love. And since he chooses us at our worst, we can be confident he will never cast us out. He saves us and he will bring us all the way home because of who he is. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So Christian, we trust in his character, in his promise, not in our best efforts or our attempts to be desirable. We have no hope if, if we started the thing because we know that we're not going to be able to make it when that fiery trial comes. But if we stand firm in the truth that God shows you, then you will remain when that hurricane comes at you. I hope that you're grasping how great this truth is. This is particularly significant for anyone who experiences hostility or opposition for those around you. The world may reject you, but God has chosen you. And so when you consider what this means, you sing with Martin Luther with joy, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. See, when you're chosen and you're loved by God, you can lose everything and it doesn't matter because you have something eternal. In fact, losing everything in this world compared to what you're going to get is it's less significant than if a billionaire loses a pence. 
It's of no consequence to the billionaire. If you lose everything in this world, you have something far greater. And instead of loss, your trials will actually bring you gain. Listen to the promise of 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, when you're confident that God has chosen you, your hardest trials are understood to be merely a light and momentary affliction. They're actually working for you a great good, and that is to bring an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or as he said, in, Paul says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, now pause it for a second. Paul knew sufferings. He talks about it, all the sufferings he endured, being beaten, being stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, floating in the oceans for three days, and many other insults that came upon him. He says, I consider that all these sufferings, this present times, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing. Christian, do you realize what God has for you? Because he's chosen you. The glory of the Lord Jesus is waiting for you to behold and to satisfy you for eternity. A couple more things we want to look at in this amazing truth about God choosing us, and that is who God has chosen. And we've looked at this a little bit, but I want to unpack this a bit more. When Peter says to the, those chosen, he has in mind individuals, not just a general vague group. Out of the masses of people in the world who deserve justice for our rebellion against God, God chooses some to be his. If you look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 18 and 19, listen to what it cost God to bring about his choice. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Now, don't get confused here. It's not talking about how much you are worth, that you are worth Christ dying for you, but it talks about how bad your condition is. You were so bad in your sins that the only thing that could remedy that was the extreme measures of Christ dying for you. What were we like talks about it in chapter 4 verse 3. We were living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The only ones that God ever chooses are rebels. Scripture is so clear that God only saves sinners. And so unless you come to grips with this and confess it to the Lord, you will never be saved. In pride, you'll resist it. Now, we all know, especially for us men, it's hard to admit when we're wrong. But how much harder is it to admit that you are a lawbreaker who deserves God's judgment? But when we confess this to God, we agree with God. We agree that we are as wicked as the scriptures say. We agree that the wages of our sin is deserving of death. We agree that apart from his forgiveness, we will spend an eternity in hell. But friend, it doesn't stop there. If you are chosen, it will be in spite of all that is wrong with us. And God will forgive us. When you're chosen, you will believe that Jesus Christ died in your place and his perfect life was given in exchange for yours. That God credits you with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then, 
because of what God does in your life, this whole orientation of your life becomes about Jesus Christ. He is a center of your solar system. He is a driving passion of your life. It is your desire to seek after him, to please him, to live according to his word, and to be dependent on his grace every moment of your life. You see, God chooses individual sinners. I love this truth. We see it at the end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, verse 8, it's talking about a future world that's going to have a leader that the Bible refers to as the beast. And it says this, Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It goes on in Revelation 17, 14. It says that those whose names are written in this book are the ones who are called, who are chosen, who are faithful. Then it goes on in Revelation 21, 27 to say that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be welcomed into eternity. So who are the chosen? Individual people. There's an actual name written in that book. And what a book it is. And it's called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain and is written with the blood of Christ. You cannot erase it. You cannot scratch a name out of there. It is written. These are individual people. And that Lamb's book is full of individual names. Is your name in that book, my friend? Have you been chosen? If you have, you will respond to the gospel when God has chosen that time. Now, for these struggling Christians, to know that they were chosen meant assurance. It provided confidence that nothing could come against them that would forfeit them. Nothing could blot their name out of that book. Now, if this was not enough, there's one more consideration I want to show you to help you stand firm. I want you to consider when God chose you. When did God choose you? Christian, God's choice of you wasn't an impulsive buy at the checkout stand. He planned this. Remember what we just read in Revelation 13, verse 8. It says that names were written in the Lamb's book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Now, when was that? Oh, beloved, I have no idea. It was a long time ago. It was before God said, let there be oceans and sky and planets. It was before God said, let there be light. Before there was a universe, God thought of you and he chose you. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ from all eternity. Oh, it's irrevocable. And it's exactly what these beleaguered Christians needed to hear. When the world rejected them, when it hated them, it does not matter because they were chosen by God. They were thought about by the Lord from eternity past. So as we come to the Lord's table, Christian, there's a seat here that's been reserved from you, for you from eternity past. It has your name on it. And if you look at the table, you'll find there are other seats around the table that are not filled. And dear friend, if you don't know if you've been chosen, simply confess your sins to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you and God will welcome you in and just know that that desire to come to the Lord, to humble yourself and to receive his forgiveness means God is at work in you. He's planned for this moment from 
eternity past. If you have not yet trusted in the Lord and taken the bread and the cup in that way, today's a day that you can come to that meal and sit down with those, those wretches like us who were lost and now have been found. I like how the great hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while those room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin.